one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Boris Johnson's position after his terrible Christmas... And you ask us, how successful will the Greens be next election? So first of all, happy Armenian Christmas, Stephen. Happy Armenian Christmas, Anish. Thank you. The festive period isn't over yet. But um, I think the last time we spoke on the podcast, uh, we were in the thick of the number 10 Christmas party scandals. And Boris Johnson was looking in the sort of worst position of his premiership yet. Then we had the Christmas recess and uh, the landscape looks a little bit different now in the sense that the pressures on the government seem to be the risk of the NHS being overwhelmed, not just with COVID cases, but also staff absences as Omicron spreads and hospitals have to start cancelling or postponing um, their planned uh, procedures and, and appointments, and also the cost of living crisis, which Angela Rayner, standing in for Keir Starmer, who must be on the Omega variant by now, <laughs> went hard on at PMQs yesterday. The poorest households spend three times more on their income on household energy bills than the richest households spend. VAT on energy bills makes gas and electricity more expensive. Yeah. Not my words, Mr Speaker, but the words of the Prime Minister oh. himself. Oh. When energy bills are going to be hiked again in April, any decent government would find a way to help British families. Even the Tory backbenchers have finally accepted Labour's call to cut VAT on energy bills. So will he finally stand up to his Chancellor and do the same? Despite these new challenges, or at least the challenges that are higher up the news agenda at the moment, do you think that Boris Johnson sort of returns in a stronger position than before we broke up for Christmas? It's an interesting one. Yes and no. On the one hand, I was about to say this will be my final doomed attempt to give a numbered list before I go to the FT, but let's say this is probably not true. <laughs> the first of three, maybe. <laughs> the, the first is that I would say that what happened over the Christmas period for a lot of Tory MPs is they went from looking at the boss and going, my God, is this all there is, to looking at the alternatives to the boss and going, my God, is this all there is. Mm. Um the thing about the Conservative leadership election is it is actually more useful to think of it as two quite discrete contests. The forced choice facing the, the membership in which broadly they will be asked to choose between a candidate from the left of the party or a candidate from the right of the party. And then there's the 
various overlapping tendencies and factions that will all produce a candidate, right? If you think about the last leadership election, right, where you basically had kind of like Jeremy Hunt as the sort of like mainstream centre-right median conservative MP candidate. Mm. Uh, You had Rory Stewart as the sort of candidate of like essentially Cameroon ultras in lots of ways. You had Gove, Raab, uh, all competing in different ways for the sort of I'm a lever, but I'm not a headbanger kind of candidate. I mean, one of the striking features of the of the last leadership election is there wasn't really a candidate properly from the right of the party. Uh, so Boris Johnson was able to get those votes mm. plus the vote of Tory MPs who want to keep their jobs. Uh, and that is why he had the, yeah, was the choice of a majority of Conservative MPs because he was, yeah, kind of the sort of candidate of last resort for the right of the party and the candidate of, oh my God, we've just finished fifth in a nationwide election. You know, we just need to press the button, Mark Boris. Um, now, obviously, you have Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, who are both candidates broadly from the sort of economic liberal part. The right of the party once again, has a problem that it doesn't really have a proper candidate because, um, as one of them said it to me, our pretty Patel needs to be taken back to the shop. Like, you know, it's developed a fault. <laughs> yeah, and they did this whole bit about, you know, like, oh, she can't do this. Oh, it can't do that. Oh, does anyone have the receipt for pretty? And that all kind of means and everyone's like, oh, well, if it's not going to be my person and I'm not too enthusiastic about any of the other candidates and, you know, like, is, is Jeremy Hunt going to run again and all of that kind of thing. Mm. that sort of eases some of the noises off. But then equally importantly, the thing that hasn't happened over the festive period is, um, I was about to say the NHS hasn't fallen over, which I mean, obviously this raises the an interesting question we'll get into. Yeah. Healthcare capacity in, in England has not uh, collapsed. And then the third thing, oh my God, it is actually a list of three. <laughs> I have no more worlds left to conquer. Um, the third thing is that public opinion has shifted uh, away from lockdowns, right? The third of people you might describe as like pro-lockdown, pre-vaccination have essentially got, you know, they're telling pollsters and apparently they're also telling the government's focus groups, um, you know, look, no, at this point, you need to find a different way of managing this. Which, of course, means that if you're the prime minister, you're no longer having to choose between median opinion in your own party and median opinion in the country. Mm. So all of that eases the pressure on him. Now, of course, there are lots of reasons that position is not stable. I think it's highly possible to imagine a situation where in the next couple of months, Liz Truss has a very good time as foreign secretary and with the Women and Equalities Brief was kind of further establishing herself as the authentic candidate of the right of the party, or in which, you know, Rishi Sunak collapses because of the very difficult economic picture. And again, the second that an overwhelming candidate emerges, things get more difficult for the incumbent. Or then the various rows about tax, which we're seeing play out at the moment in the cabinet, um, mean that we end up with, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg emerging as a plausible, um, proper contender from the right of the party, all of which would in different ways further destabilise the leadership. The second thing, of course, is the NHS um, could still collapse. It hasn't in London, but yeah, the average London is five years younger than the average person in the country. London was harder hit by the first wave, so probably does have a slightly higher immunity wall, not only in terms of vaccinations, most people in the United Kingdom, regardless of region, are vaccinated, but also in prior infection. So it may be that the sort of 
yeah, the reason why lots of Tory MPs are going, it's great, it's worked, is because London's healthcare system hasn't collapsed. And they therefore believe that this means that, you know, Broadland's healthcare capacity won't collapse. But that is not true because people in Broadland are much older than they are in London and they're much less likely to have had the novel coronavirus yet. So there are lots of things that could change. But yeah, I would say he's in a more stable position now than he was last we spoke. Yes. There was quite a lot of talk about the sort of, in a way, the Omicron wave strangely sort of saving him or at least distracting people from from his woes. And he did a lot of that himself, didn't he, when he was um, calling various press conferences, the type of press conferences that I'm sure you get this too, Stephen, where people who you know, who don't work in, in this industry and, you know, my family and stuff will text me and say, what's he going to announce, you know, convinced that there's going to be sort of uh, restrictions that will alter our day-to-day lives again, like like the various press conferences um, proceeded in 2020, only to sort of announce things we sort of already know in an attempt to look prime ministerial uh, and to put uh, COVID at the top of the news agenda to knock something perhaps more embarrassing for the government off it. Because we do know, although public opinion is shifting on restrictions, that there is this kind of COVID exceptionalism that pollsters pick up time and again from the public, which is the willingness to give the government the benefit of the doubt because this is a this is something that's unprecedented and they and they couldn't have predicted. There is still a long tail of that. So in a way, there I think there was some merit in those arguments that what happened just before Christmas with the virus did kind of help the prime minister's position perversely but then of course the the impact of that on the NHS on his political standing is yet to be seen um like you say London seems to have weathered the storm but all the people in the NHS that I've been speaking to um for pieces about full bed occupancy ambulance delays, etc., are in trusts that are outside of London. You know, there are longer distances to travel if you're picking someone up on a blue light and taking them to hospital. There are more severe staff shortages in trusts outside of London. So I do think it could be an incredibly different picture uh, in other parts of the country that could result in the NHS being overwhelmed. I mean, 17 hospitals in Greater Manchester had to pause their routine appointments and and procedures um, to try and get ahead of the Omicron wave that's now sort of uh, hitting that part of the country. So you can see that happening. Um, and although there's sort of this argument that the NHS hasn't been overwhelmed, I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, you, I, I spoke to a, to a mother who couldn't get her child who was having a seizure to hospital for five hours you know that that shouldn't happen so there are there are standards being dropped in order to try and uh, keep all of the plates spinning already and even if that doesn't translate into the kind of harrowing footage that we saw from you know Italy in the first wave for example where patients just were being turned away at the door it is sort of happening in other ways it's a little bit like britain's first wave you know where okay they said the nhs wasn't overwhelmed but really that was because the crisis was being outsourced to care homes then which were overwhelmed so um i do think that he's not out of the woods on that and also sort of probably more politically damaging for him is that the solution the government has proposed to this problem of the NHS backlog, I mean, is a tax rise, which is supposed to be coming in in April. You know, that that could be really explosive because 
from people that I've spoken to, you know, a head of a big hospital trust, you know, really expressed doubt that that money that would be raised from that tax would help them get through the backlog in the time period proposed. So that's going to be incredibly controversial. And you already see those debates happening that you mentioned, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg as well. I think with the cost of living crisis on top of that, energy bills going up, we had some exclusive polling out today that shows over three quarters of people have noticed that their food, their regular food shops are pricier. With all of that to add to 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 the picture, I think things are going to get really, really difficult for, for Boris Johnson if, you know, his solution is to just tax people more which is something, you know, his MPs only reluctantly supported at the time. And, and there's this sort of pent up frustration over over that policy. I think that's only going to get more acute as people feel the pinch more and more this year. So I think that will probably be one of the major sticking points. And like you say, then the debates will be over what kind of economic policy you want from from the sort of potential successor to Boris Johnson. And that's where the the fault lines will really lie in a potential leadership contest. The thing I thought was really interesting in the House yesterday is that you know, Boris Johnson clearly felt a lot more confident because he had uh, adopted a position where he was like, look, we're pro-lockdown, you're, you're pro-lockdown, we're anti it. Mm. And look, it's worked fine. The problem with it's worked fine is, yes, it puts you on the side of public opinion in terms of not wanting for the stay-at-home orders, et cetera, et cetera. But it does put you in this, I think, politically terrible position of going, do you know what worked perfectly and everyone was satisfied with? The NHS in the summer of 2019? <laughs> both, both the Conservatives and Labour in 2019 were going, this service has huge problems and we're going to fix this in some way, shape or form. Now, the thing when you talk to a certain type of Conservatives and they um, will sort of say is and one of the big problems is, is that... You know, they, they'll say, you know, the Labour Party in 2019 had uh, a plan to improve patient outcomes and I don't think will work. Well, they said they didn't think it would work, obviously. It's kind of unclear whether or not that is still the Labour Party's plan. They said, we don't have a plan beyond just going, have some more money. And they said, and I'm even less convinced that will work. Mm. And you do kind of have this thing where you almost now have, you know, it's not quite a minister has ever stood up and sort of said explicitly, Hey guys, don't worry. Your chances of getting COVID nineteen are only in in hospital are only about as bad as your chances of getting MRSA. Or you know, like, hey guys, don't worry. The number of patients on wards with someone experiencing a serious psychotic outbreak is is flat on twenty nineteen. <laughs> but that is sort of the the grim reality of the NHS is coping fine. Yeah. And obviously, one of the reasons why the problems in the NHS. Uh, had not become acutely difficult for the Conservative Party in 2019 was that they had successfully pulled off regeneration because they had, you know, Boris Johnson, a man who was not seen as as, as providing continuity with the uh, the last decade. But the second, I think, is that it's much easier to preside over a service gradually getting worse than to have essentially turned society on and off again and have gone, look, this is the NHS you've protected, isn't it great? Yeah. Uh, I think striking and at exactly the same point that all of the polls are showing the public switching away from restrictions they also show satisfaction with the government's management of the NHS uh, falling quite significantly and I suspect that is partly because if you arrive at the in my view correct position then a lockdown once you have vaccinations is not an appropriate uh, non-pharmaceutical intervention you then immediately go oh well is is our healthcare capacity resilient enough then you can 
definitively take lockdowns off the table forever? And then the answer is, well, of course not. No. And that's quite a painful place for the Tory party to be in anyway. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about this slow decline not being as attention grabbing. Because do you remember before the December 2019 general election when there was that story of the four-year-old boy who was sleeping on the hospital floor under his coat? Do you remember that in A&E? I think he had pneumonia symptoms or, or suspected pneumonia and everyone was sort of jumped on this story as something that could be incredibly damaging for for Boris Johnson in the run-up to the election. But it didn't, you know, obviously play a big part. But like you say, now its shortcomings have been totally exposed by by the virus and also people's health and the state of the NHS is sort of more salient because of that. Um, I don't think those kind of stories will sort of go, well, well, you know, that's priced in, that's par for the course, that's what the NHS is like, but we still love it type attitude. I, I do think that that's shifting. So, and, and also, to be honest, it, it, even from a cynical political perspective, if you didn't care about the state of the health service, it still touches on one of Boris Johnson's most vulnerable points, which is how do you fund the, the the public sector? He's proposed this tax rise, and that's one of you know that's one of the most difficult parts of his relationship with with his backbenchers and some in his cabinet as well at the moment. So, it, I think it is more of a crunch issue than it would have been back in twenty nineteen. It comes back to the sort of weirdness of the Conservative electoral coalition, which is it is it is diverse in lots of ways. But one of the ways it is not diverse is that it is broadly made up of people who have benefited from ultra-low interest rates. And I think the problem Mm -hmm. with being an ultra-low interest rates um, electoral coalition is, one, low interest rates have been a global uh, post-crisis phenomena and the conditions which cause them to rise, you know, may, may no longer obtain for reasons far outside your control if you are a British chancellor. But also, I don't think it is a coincidence that we've had a decade of ultra-low interest rates and a decade of low to stagnant growth. And in some ways, I think the Conservative Electoral Coalition's interests are perfectly well served by low to stagnant growth, but they are not served by recession. And they're actually not... I mean, if you imagine, for an example, a situation in which we went back to having 2-3% growth and interest rates were back to their sort of mid-noughties level, you would probably go, oh, that's a much better economic situation. Yeah, if you're Rishi Sunak, you're no longer having to sit there going, oh, I can't make my sums add up. <laughs> but equally, the journey from our current interest rates to to, to 2005 is, is going to be quite painful yeah. for the Conservative Electoral Coalition. And so I think, then, yeah, there are, as I say, there are all sorts of, um, yeah, quite gnarly waters ahead. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. From The New Statesman's World Review comes Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. (laughs) I'm your host, Emily Tampkin, and I'll be joined by expert guests to examine how President Biden's core campaign pledges have held up, specifically foreign policy. We've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, The administration does not call the EU a foe. Immigration. I think a lot of people 
who were opposing Trump's policies, you know, most obviously the separation of the children at the border, I think may also find it very uncomfortable that they might be complicit in electing someone who is now keeping those policies in place. And voting rights. Just search for World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question today is from Nate. The Greens gained more council seats in by-elections than any other party this year. And I think when he says this year, he means 2021. Remember that. What is behind this unprecedented rate of victory and what would it take for this to translate in Parliament? And he very helpfully gives a list of by-election wins. I won't read them all out, but they do cover a lot of Tory ground. Kent, Suffolk, Somerset. Stephen, do you want to go first? Well, I mean, I, I think it's an act of cowardice for us not to have written a sort of, you know, the periodic table style song where we... we, we you know, like, <laughs> yeah. the yeah, but no. but <laughs> this actually, I think, is one of the really interesting unwritten stories of 2021. Not least because I think, you know, we can now, you know, all of the people who are going, it's not a vaccine bounce. The Conservatives will be in power for a thousand years. <laughs> These local elections are much more to do with something Keir Starmer has done than the fact that you can go outside again. I think all of those people are just you know, discreetly trying to pretend and that obviously silly take uh, was not never a silly take they had. But, um, <laughs> even, but I think the thing which is really useful about May 2021 is in England, I think it gives you an almost exact sort of like, you know, who are the people who at the higher watermark in terms of public policy successes than the Conservative Party is ever going to have and quite potentially a high watermark in public policy successes that any government could reasonably expect to have in its five year term? Who are the people who are still going to go, nah, I'm all right, thanks. And, and so, you know, in some ways, in terms of the Labour Conservative battlegrounds, it confirmed rather than confounded anything we expected to Labour still doing better in Worthing than you would expect, given the national environment. Uh, ditto with the, the Liberal Democrats, and that, of course, uh, sort of presaged the win in Chesham and Amersham, right? Was that they had done well in Chesham and Amersham, even during the height of that um, vaccine bounce. But there's also the emergence of a new um, Green Party problem. Yeah, because in some ways, um, you know, and although every time we use the term progressive, uh, you know, people from all three of the parties write in going, dear sir, I do not believe that <laughs> Labour slash the Greens slash the Lib Dems slash <laughs> are progressive. But broadly, right, the way the United Kingdom votes is people vote for or against the Tories. And depending on where they live, they are picking a red lever, or a yellow lever, and increasingly a green lever. And what I think is interesting about, about what we're seeing is in part we're seeing 
the so in the in the eighties and nineties, yeah, the late eighties and the nineties, you had the gradual um, vanishing of places where where the vote went something like you know Conservative forty five, Labour twenty. SDP, Liberal Alliance 20, or the other way around. And there was not a clear anti-conservative challenger to one in which there were. That was the big shift in 1992, right? That's why John Major did worse in seats in the Commons um, compared to Margaret Thatcher in 82, despite getting many more votes because the country was getting a lot better at voting tactically. But also one of the ways 1992 presaged 1997 is that it was a lot clearer in large chunks of the country what the lever you were pulling in order to vote against the Conservatives was. And what's really interesting is, so some of these places you look at and you're like, oh, so this is a place which was Lib Dem until... You know, either until local elections at some point, you know, in the 2010 to, you know, basically a Lib Dem council area up until they went into coalition. It's been lost. The Liberal Democrat Party there, you know, is moribund. And the Greens have emerged like a big green phoenix to become the challenger. But the other interesting play, place than the Greens are doing better is places which, even in 1997, you still have Conservative vote 45%, Labour vote 20-something percent, Lib Dem vote 20-something percent. Then the kind of then they are slightly in some places kind of rationalizing the last little bits on the map where you go, okay, but who is the anti-conservative party here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so take Broadland is one of the places where the Greens have made gains, right? Which has always, you know, throughout the 90s noughties, had this kind of vestigial Lib Dem presence, vestigial Labour presence in third. And then actually for quite a long time in, th- in, in, yeah, well, in fourth, a Green Party presence. And now what seems to be happening is you have the Green Party emerging as the kind of authentic conservative challenger in these places. In some ways, I think by-elections is, is kind of, yeah, well, as in parliamentary by-elections, are very mm. much not where the Green Party focus should be, not least because, as we've seen in this last year, right, their voters are very willing to vote tactically for the main challenger. Um, they, you know, their vote was squeezed down to Labour's benefit, Hartlepool, Batley and Spen, Bexley and Sidcup, to Lib Dem benefit, Cheshire and Amersham, North Shropshire. We had an, a by-election in a very safe Conservative seat in slightly better circumstances for the Tory party, right? Yeah, like, it's imagine they're not quite in as bad a position as they were uh, in December. I imagine you would still see the green vote being collapsed, even if it mm. didn't mean, as, as you saw in Hartlepool, of course. And I think that happens in, in a by-election. What I think they really need um, is is just to have a couple of really good second places. Solihull, I think, is is the other example, right? They, you know, uh, have a good-sized council group already, uh, was Liberal Democrat uh, in the past, but I, I think, candidly, is not going to be again. It's also... The Lib Dems have always weirdly struggled in the West Midlands. And in some ways, just as um, just as the Lib Dems have done well in areas where the Labour Party has just struggled to place, I think part of what the Greens are successfully doing is they're taking these places which have been um, inhospitable to the other progressive parties. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing it reflects, uh, sorry, I'm aware I have, you know, rabbited on at excessive length, even by my standards here. But the other thing it reflects is, right, is that broadly having policies to tackle climate change is an essential component of being a credible party of any size right like UKIP had green policies in 2015 we can argue about whether or not they were actually committed to them but I think it's I think what it reflects and I think it's yeah one of the interesting pressure points right and we see this in the house yeah these stories going like I'm not saying that climate change isn't a problem but does it have to be our problem the thing that gives a lot of um, green conservatives hope is they go well look 
because the greens are doing well in our own turf, we can say, look, you know, your, your idea is not just crazy. It has an electoral cost too. And obviously, I think we will all hope that the opportunity to the Greens does not get bigger because that would mean the Conservative Party becoming less green themselves. But I think it is significant and it shows that throughout the United Kingdom, no matter what type of voter you are, and, you know, despite the sort of attempt of various sort of campaign groups to to sort of pretend this is not so, you really cannot get out of bed, um, or at least you can get out of bed, but you won't get very far. You can't get out of bed as a political party in the United Kingdom without having a serious sounding set of policies on climate. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I was, I was speaking to one uh, Labour insider who was saying, I think we should just change the name to Green Labour <laughs> at one point last year, um, which just shows sort of like the power of branding as well. You know, the Green Party does have a lot of quite radical left wing policies on the economy. But because of that branding, because it's so considered once you enter the ballot box in a by-election or, you know, in one of these council by-elections, for example, that Nate has listed and you're a sort of dis- disillusioned conservative voters in one of these one of these council areas, um, the Greens are the, are the ones to pick just because you know that, you know, from their branding, they're the ones who are the most committed. Um, but that's not the only thing. I think there's, there's a sort of concerted effort within the Green Party to try and pick off some of the small C conservative voters. I mean, remember our after the local elections last year, Jonathan Bartley, the then co-leader, came out and said, I think they'd gained just as many seats from, from the Conservatives as, as Labour. I think he came out and said, you know, we believe in small business and local economy and, you know, we're passionate about, about things like that. So the messaging had been there from, from the start. And actually, when I uh, from, from, from the start of the um, local elections last year, um, sort of picking up on this rattling the blue wall kind of trend. And when I interviewed the new leaders, Carla Denyer and Adrian Ramsey at their conference last year, it was really interesting because every answer seemed, I thought, almost to be pitched towards those kind of voters. They were very cold about insulate Britain. You know, they were non-committal about Extinction Rebellion. They said that, you know, they didn't really like some of the green language that the party had been using, like Green New Deal, and they wanted to speak in a more sort of direct, accessible way to voters. And then when I asked them about what happens when you reach that point where your your policies sort of contradict what the seats you're targeting want, you know, like on housing policy, for example, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but if you're trying to target sort of voters in semi-rural or rural areas who are worried about planning easements, um, then how do you how do you marry that with a policy that wants to build more more housing? And also sort of the contradiction of the the more radical economic policies when you're trying to influence uh, those those disillusioned conservative voters. And they they basically said, we don't hide our policies when when we talk to people, you know, and like some of them are quite popular, for example, public ownership of some, you know, services like energy providers, for example, are quite popular with these kind of voters. Um, and it's just that in the Green Party brand, rather than the Labour Party brand, sort of makes them feel more comfortable about voting for, for the Greens. So I thought it was really interesting that that was, you know, a focus for them in in our interview um and i do think that in the in the local election results you know they were winning seats in in a, in a real patchwork of places burnley east sussex gloucestershire kent shropshire south tyneside you know like they they're sort of like um picking off seats in all kinds of different areas i do think that that's you know while it won't necessarily translate to more s- seats in parliament 
for green politicians aside from in you know certain areas eventually where they have really good second placings like you say it could it could be a sort of harbinger of a, a change of government at some point you know whether voters vote for Lib Dems in those seats or not yeah I mean I, I think this is the thing is I think you know, and this is I can I can already feel. In fact, I feel I can name some of the Labour politicians who will get in touch to complain when I about what I'm about to say. But I think the reality in this country is essentially what happens is is that the the Labour Party wins when um, there is broadly a consensus that um, the country is starting to look a bit rubbish and mouldy around the edges, public realms in a bad state. Essentially, people broadly pull the Labour lever when they just kind of feel like the Conservatives look a bit clapped out and a bit rubbish. Now, an effective Labour opposition can accelerate that process and an ineffective Labour opposition can Mm. can delay it. That is broadly the thing that happened. And when that happens, that benefits all of the parties not called the Conservative Party. The thing which is still striking about the 2015 election is it's basically the only election the Conservative Party had won in a proper era of multi-party politics, you know, where you have a clear second-place challenger going into that election. Obviously, by the end of it, you did not have a clear second-place challenger going into it in many of the, those elections. And I think whether it's in 2024, 2029, or you know, 2042, the two things which I strongly believe will happen the next time uh, Labour wins a majority are, one... Theresa May will lose her maidenhead seat. And two, the Green Party will pick up one or two seats somewhere. Mm-hmm. Just as in, you know, Ed Davey, it, late early hours of 1997, and, you know, like a bunch of Lib Dem strategists are just like, oh, you know that bright young man who worked in Paddy's office has become an MP? <laughs> right? Yeah, like, that just happens when the country turns against the Conservative. It just picks, mm. it just, you know. And, yeah, this is kind of one of the slightly bizarre things about the whole should there be a progressive alliance. It's broadly the country forms a progressive alliance on its own, Mm. regardless of whether or not the Labour Party, the Lib Dems and the Green Party can actually agree uh, who to stand for, down down for where. Yeah, so no, I think it is, you know, it is a a big and significant shift. Mm. Whether it's a big and significant shift next election, election after that remains to be seen. But it is an important, it's an important trend and it's a good question. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.